Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AF59. Inflation. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 163, February 11, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss inflation. In spite of all the propaganda to the contrary, inflation is still very much with us. And the Reagan administration has not defeated it, it has only increased it. Now, before going into the subject of inflation, it is best to uh, understand a few things about it. Inflation is the increase of the money supply. It is a subject that is imp important to us because we have been in a time of inflation since Roosevelt took office. One of the things that inflation does is to give relief to those who are in debt at the expense of those who are creditors. I'm going to read, before we begin our discussion, something from a book published first in 35 and again in 36. So it's over 50 years old. The author was Freeman Tilden, the title of the book, A World in Debt. And this is what he said, and I quote, The vital prerequisite of an effective inflation, which will result disastrously to the creditor position, is the intent to falsify the true economic position of a nation, or to relieve the debtor at the expense of the creditor. Well, there is no, where there is no such intent, there may be a temporary inflation, not harmful, possibly beneficial, and it will contract itself when its work is done. Inflation, whether of bank, credit, or of paper money, cannot be effective until the larcenous purpose is generally comprehended." Unquote. I'd like to comment very briefly on what uh, Freeman Tilden said at that point. When Roosevelt took office in the early 30s, he immediately began a vast increase of the money supply, a vast increase of available credit. But because people at that time did not have larceny in their hearts, and they were badly burned by the collapse they did not buy his inflation. As a result, prices did not go up, and people refused to go along with the inflation until after the war, when the returning veterans wanted everything and wanted it quickly. But his definition of what makes inflation work is important. It is larceny in the heart. It begins with larceny on the federal level, and then the people buy it. They go into debt, because going into debt is the honest way, supposedly, of stealing. However, 
in the end, it's the people who are robbed by the federal government because as inflation proceeds, they are progressively gutted through taxation as well as inflation. Well, I'm going to stop at this point. Otto, do you want to make some general comments, including uh, a comment on whether or not we have had inflation in the last few years? Well, <clears throat> yes, we've had inflation, I think, for longer than that, Rush. There was an old account book in my maternal grandfather's home, and he worked on the brickyards. And I noticed that around 1910 or so, he made about $12 a week, which was a considerable wage in those days. Mm -hmm. Very good wage. His home only cost $720, and he paid cash for it. At that rate, that was about the cost of a year and a half salary, or a year and a half's income. Uh, if homes today were selling at a comparable ratio, they would be selling at, say, 30, 35000 But $12 a week, support a family. Uh, three or four cents could buy a meal in a restaurant. A dollar was a fair size note. Mm -hmm. Ten dollars, a very big note, and so forth. So what we're talking about here is an inflation which took a big spurt under Roosevelt, but which had been steadily growing because that $12 a week became $25 a week when you and I were young men. Uh, $1,200 a year was a uh, fair salary for a working person, postal salary, you might say. Then, uh, in 1967 or so, I did an article uh, discussing the role of scientists in the rubber industry, and I interviewed the directors of various rubber research institutes. These were men who graduated in the top percentile, and they were recruited by the big rubber companies at $125 to $150 a week in 
So we have another decade to go in which we could, if the parallel holds up, see what the economists call the shoot, in which everyone loses faith in the money. Yes, uh, it is true, as you said, that inflation is a long-standing thing in this country. Some years ago, I did quite a bit of reading and studying, and I thought for a while of writing a book on the uh, coinage of the United States in the early years and what happened. And I did write... Uh, or three chapters, and I don't know what's happened to them. But what was especially interesting to me was the uh, way business was conducted from um, the time of George Washington to within not too many years of Lincoln. We had in those early years a halfpenny piece. We had a penny. We had a two-cent piece. All three of these were copper. Then we had a silver three-cent piece, a five-cent piece, or half-dime, as it was called. We had the dime, and we had the 20-cent piece. Now, most of the business was conducted with the first three or four coins because each of them would buy quite a bit, so that uh, a dollar bill was very great wealth. It was a lot of money. Moreover, when we first started to uh, mint gold coins, our first coins had no denomination because they were in terms of weight. And uh, later, when we did give a denomination, the $20 gold piece, or double eagle, was one ounce, 90% fineness gold. The uh, eagle, or $10 gold piece, was half an ounce, and so on down. So. It was a very hard money-oriented culture that we had. And what happened was that first the half cent went out of circulation, and then the three cent, and then we had a nickel instead of a half dime, which had been silver, and the 20 cent piece went out. And of course now they're saying that the penny is obsolete and the nickel may be the dime because parking meters have gone up to a quarter. So we're seeing some uh, dramatic changes in the whole outlook of the country. And von Mises once commented on the fact when somebody said there's not enough gold or silver in the world to provide currency. And he said, uh, after inflation goes for a while, there's not enough paper in the world to provide money. And uh, states are the only agencies that can take perfectly good paper, print them into money, and make them worthless. Well, that's, that's fascinating. 
I didn't know about all those coins. The half dime I know about and some of the others, but all of them I didn't know. But as you recall, both of us ran across an old book on American money about three or four years ago, beginning with the continental dollar, paper dollar. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget the congressman then who said, uh, why should we ever have any problem with money? We just get a queer paper and print whatever we need. And although this has been to an extent a hard money country in the past, it was also always a, a country where the people felt that money should be made plentiful. And our banks put out all kinds of paper all through the history of the United States. And they're still doing it, of course, through the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember interviewing Bill Friedman, who was a remarkable man. He went into the banking business when he was about 12 or so, as a, as a gopher, I suppose you'd say, in the Chicago bank, and he wound up in his 80s, highly respected, very successful banker, loan officer. And one of his early tasks was to take a big bundle of various banknotes and that's what a banknote was, a uh, piece of currency put out in the name of a bank, down to the clearinghouse in Chicago, where they would uh, osterize them in some fashion or another and put them all together. I'm not quite sure myself how it worked. And some of these banks would fail. Some were better than others. Some were known across large areas, and some were only regional. And from the beginning, therefore, there has been a sort of a poor man's greed, you might say, mm -hmm. regarding the whole issue of money in the United mm -hmm. States. We've had several problems, I think, which led to this. When we got rid of the aristocracy, we also got rid of the idea of an aristocracy, which was probably a mistake. Mm -hmm. The hereditary aristocracy, of course, runs thin and doesn't hold up. But what Jefferson referred to as an aristocracy of merit mm -hmm. really should have replaced the hereditary aristocracy, and it didn't. And what we used instead, nationally speaking, was money. So that a person with money became worth more in every sense than a person without money, which wasn't a very good idea. Mm -hmm. But it set off a mad scramble which we've never really overcome. Yes, that's very true. Uh, of course, John Law was the great uh, innovator within uh, Western cultures of paper money. And ironically, he was a Scot who propagated his ideas in Britain where they were never ready to go along with him altogether. Now, in a sense, you could say the whole idea of a, an inflationary currency first began in Britain with the Bank of England. But the Bank of England, over the uh, decades and now a couple of centuries, has always been 
a bit better controlled, so they never went to the excesses that uh, took place in France when law was accepted there and which debauched the economy of the country. And law's ideas were picked up throughout Europe and used. In this country, paper money came in the back door. Uh, the idea of uh, stealing from a crook, so to speak, is very, very dangerous because you become a crook in the process. And the thing that started the uh, paper money craze in this country, and Benjamin Franklin was one of the great advocates of it to his dying day, bad influence in that area. At any rate, uh, the British had given a monopoly on trade with America and other places, the East India Company and other groups. And as a result, American seamen were barred from going abroad and bringing in goods at the best possible price. So it was destroying American trade. And uh, when the ships would come, the East India Company ships, it would mean that as they sold things that were illegal for Americans to buy elsewhere or to trade for, America would be stripped of its uh, natural resources and whatever coinage, gold or silver, it had accumulated. So since the acts of the various state or colonial legislatures were valid until the king overturned them. He had the veto power, and that took a few months with the sailing vessels of that day to carry the acts to London and then to come back with his signature or veto, and they were valid until he vetoed them. So the colonial legislatures decided, we'll get even with the East India Company and these other groups. We will pay them off in paper, worthless paper. So they passed paper money laws to get at these British monopolists. But it became an addiction, and the common people began to love it. So uh, with the war, of course, it created all kinds of problems, and it was with difficulty that they got the hard money clause through. But they left a loophole in that they allowed the banks the power to create uh, paper money. And almost every uh, depression in American history until this century was created by the banks with their paper money. Well, let's go back to John Law for a minute. Mm. Fascinating story. But you know that Law gets credit, uh, he gets too much credit. Uh, it's true that he introduced the idea of paper money to the regent in France, and that he convinced the regent and various and sundry others that based upon the power, the, the uh, value of the land, I believe, mm -hmm. that, that would back the paper money. But that wasn't sufficient for the French of that day, because it was a period when gold and silver was money. So therefore, they said the paper money that was printed and circulated would be backed by gold. Mm -hmm. 
And on that basis, it was accepted. Then when one of the nobles had an enormous amount of this paper money, he sent his servants and a carriage to the French treasury and said, I want to redeem this. The government reneged mm -hmm. and refused to pay off. And that's when the whole thing fell apart. Yes. Now, that reminds me very much of the United States. Mr. Nixon was confronted with a run on gold. Our dollar was still redeemable in gold by the uh, central banks, not by the individuals of the United States, but by the central banks. And the Central Bank of France in particular, which has always had a great fondness for gold, the French love gold, made a big run on the Nixon administration treasury for gold. And then he closed the gold window yes. and said, we will no longer honor our promises. Mm -hmm. Now, prior to that, of course, Mr. Roosevelt had done that to the people. Mm -hmm. He had done what the regions of France had done. He had said the American dollar used to be backed by gold. And Mr. Roosevelt was the one who said, not only will the dollar no longer be backed by gold, but the citizens of the United States will no longer be permitted to own gold. And the Supreme Court of the United States upheld him in this confiscation of property. And that was a court which was then uh, described as too conservative. Yes. It was a court that had spaghetti for spines. Mm -hmm. Because well when, when he threatened to pack it, when they stood for a little while, they resisted, he threatened to pack them, they caved in, bingo, a bunch of noodles. We have then done, we have repeated some historic crimes. Now, when the government of France reneged, when the, when the king reneged, uh, and law was ruined together with everybody else. The people of France never again regained their faith in that particular monastery. The Bourbons lost the allegiance of the people of France. Yes. That was 1715, and it took until almost 1790 before the results really emerged. Mm -hmm. How long is that? 80, uh, 80 years, mm -hmm. roughly. 84 years. So. The United States government reneged in 1932, 33, reneged in 1933, because if I remember correctly, it didn't have an office until the year after the election. I'm not sure that the people of the United States today have any faith in the government of the United States. Not much, that's for sure. Not much. Mm -hmm. How much could you have? My mother put $80,000 into World War II war bonds in 1942. That was a lot of money then. And Tremendous. she let it sit in the bank and never told us about it until she died at the age of 83 a few years back. And of course, she never dreamed that the government of the United States would steal the value of that money from her. Mm -hmm. But it did. Yes. Yes. Well, today we are coming into the latter stages of inflation. And
and the payoff will come before the end of this century, if not some years before the end. Because inflation always results in some kind of dramatic collapse. The men in Washington believe that they can negate past history, that what has happened in the future does not necessarily have to happen again. And basic to that premise is the belief that there is no God, that there is no law in the universe, that man can govern reality and remake it as he chooses. I have a good quote on that. I have an interesting publication here called A Understanding Defense. I hadn't seen it before. Somebody mailed it to me. And it's an independent newsletter. Most of it seems to be fairly interesting, but he's got some one paragraph here which really caught my attention. He says, while the dollar in its worst case, cases has fallen about 50% against the mark of West Germany, our third largest trading partner, and 43% against the franc of Switzerland, our 16th largest partner, it has risen nearly 140% against the peso of Mexico, our fourth largest trading partner, and almost 240% against the currency of Brazil, our 12th largest partner. Against our largest partner, Canada, the dollar has fallen under 8%, and not even 30% against Japan, our second largest partner. And those figures, he says, are taken from the 14th of December, 1987. Well, that's a very interesting way to put things. Because when he says that our dollar has risen against Brazil, of course, we're talking about a country where the inflation rate is a thousand percent. Yes. And when it's risen against Mexico, the Mexican peso is dropping like a stone, everybody knows. And what we're looking at here is a statistical description of an artificial world. Yes. Which is totally remote from anything real. Now, economically speaking, if, to talk about our economic circumstances is almost impossible because, for instance, we don't know the cost of our agricultural products because of the immense subsidy given to the agricultural sector. We don't know what it costs to raise what, and therefore we have no idea of what pricing mechanism is at work nor do we know anything about these other currencies in relation to ours. We're all, what we're talking about is a bunch of paper. None of them are backed by anything. Mm -hmm. It's not even, when you come right down to it, money. If you move from one of these countries to another, you have to declare how much you had when you came in and how much you're leaving with. Uh, it's as though we have a bunch of company stores and a bunch of corporations running us all, and they're issuing their own cigar coupons and telling each one of us what we can buy with them. Mm -hmm. Well, how can you make economic sense out of this sort of a world? What, what is the real value? What, yes. what, what do we use as a standard? Yes, and every attempt is made to 
uh, prevent the one real standard in the economic scene from uh, registering properly. That is the price of gold. So uh, you have dumping of gold by central banks, apparently, it's reported regularly, in order to depress the price so it will not reveal the weakness of the paper currencies. So that's a further fraud that is practiced, to give an artificial strength to the paper currencies in relationship to gold. Well, if uh, the central banks still use gold. Yes. The bankers tell us that gold is not really collateral. One of the things recently that has upset the gold market has been an agreement by one of the large banks to lend a mining company money using one million ounces of gold as collateral. I think $400 million or something of that sort, $400 I think is what they're willing to lend. I'm not positive about the figure. It's a large amount of money. And that has upset the whole banking system. Yes. Because it's the first crack in what was a boycott against the use of gold as collateral. Bankers across the country have said, you cannot bring gold into here. We won't lend you any money on the gold. Even though the price of gold keeps going up. Yes. Even though they'll take your house, even though the house has got termites all over it, <laughs> they won't take gold. No. This, of course, is, is puzzling, excepting that what we're talking about is a solid union position, because otherwise everything in the bank will become worthless. Yes. Now, on the other hand, the, the Wall Street Journal recently said had a, an editorial had it good as gold. Mm-hmm. And did you read it? No, uh, you didn't get me last Friday's. Ah, oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I watched for it, but Friday's paper didn't appear. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> home. I'll bring it tomorrow. I apologize, because it's the lead editorial that says, good as gold. And it has some kind things to say about Jack Kent. Mm-hmm. because Kemp recognizes that gold is a standard of value. And it also has some kind words from Mr. Treasury Secretary Baker for saying that maybe a basket of securities, including gold, might stabilize the monetary situation. And it also says something about the European bankers who are muttering about the use of gold again. <laughs> so after years and years of, of disdaining the whole subject, the editorial writers of the Wall Street Journal have finally decided that things are scary enough to start talking about using gold. Lotto, I have a story that uh, will match that, I think, because back in the late 60s and early 70s, a very good friend of mine, you know him, Bert. Oh, yes. worked out a very good deal for his better customers. If they would buy a a sack of silver uh, dollars, they would be purchased on a loan from the bank of $700 per bag. And you paid $300 or $400, depending on the price of silver. This was before 
silver began to rise. And I think when he started it, a uh, bag of, of silver dollars was 1050 so you only paid a $50 premium. So at that price, you paid $350. The bank loaned 700 and held it as collateral. Well, when the board of directors of the bank met and they learned that there were hundreds of bags of silver dollars in their vault, they were horrified. Wasn't that dangerous lending money on something like that? And uh, he was told by the bank vice president who had been in charge of this, we have only loaned out $700 for a $1,000 bag. Yes, but what if the price of silver collapses? How could it? Yes, it's legal tender. How could it collapse? It could never go below a dollar. It's a dollar. Yes. So they still could not comprehend it. <laughs> I should add that uh, a popular movie star was one of the board members of that bank, so you know how much intelligence there was in that board. The federal government, of course, finally killed that kind of deal, said they could not borrow on money. Is that so? <laughs> they couldn't <laughs> borrow on money. On the money of the United States, silver dollars. <laughs> you know, the bureaucratic mind is something that I'll never understand. <laughs> Can you imagine feeling that loaning $700 on $1,000 in silver uh, is somehow bad banking? Well, we're getting... No wonder our banks are in trouble. <laughs> I had a fellow tell me just a few days ago that he wanted to rent a car for cash. And the car rental agency got quite upset and said he would have to post a large bond before, before they would do it. <laughs> well, Dorothy and I saved up for years to buy a house. We didn't have charge accounts or anything, so we had no credit. And we were making a down payment of four times the required amount. And we had it there and checked, and they were turning us down because we had no credit. And I said, isn't it an evidence of credit that we're starting off with four times the amount you're calling for? Well, you may have something there, the bank loan of officers said. <laughs> well, we... There has been a slip, a slippage, I think, in the caliber of the people involved. Yes. Just as an experiment, about a ten months or so ago, uh, my daughter has a. Uh, I took out an insurance policy, payable in twenty years, when she was five. And when she was twenty-four in a few months, I said to the banker. Uh, Perhaps you ought to lend my daughter some money and accept this insurance policy as collateral because it'll be due in another year 
and she looks healthy, and if she isn't, if something happens to her, I'm the beneficiary, and I'll have the money from the policy. And he said, well, uh, I'll have to ask the central office. <laughs> and it's impossible to have yes. had better collateral. Yes. Well, they are so far afield. They've been brought up in terms of a debt mentality and a paper mentality, and they don't understand reality anymore. What they're up to is mortgaging houses. Yes. They can understand a home mortgage, mm -hmm. equity loan, they call it. Mm -hmm. They won't call it a second mortgage. Mm -hmm. But they're hung up on this. That's the only thing they want to lend on. There is a story that I remember from my grade school days. I think it was written by H.G. E. Wells about the man who had one eye and he lived in a valley where all were blind and the persecution he endured and he had finally to flee for his life because they insisted that reality was not what he said it was. That has all the ring of truth. Mm -hmm. Well, it is true, bankers are not businessmen. Bankers yeah. are bankers. There's an entirely difference. I mean, they'll lend you money if you don't need it. <laughs> and if you get in trouble, they want you to pay off right away. They're bookkeepers, and not very good ones at that. Well, right now, of course, they have been encouraged by the American government to lend money all around the world. Now, part of the reason that they were able to lend the money was the petrodollars. The money that the Arabs put into the banks, which the bankers then use as a basis to lend to the most ridiculous people, to various black African nations, to the Soviet Union. Nobody knows how many billions of dollars have gone to the Soviet Union. Yes. Both through their satellites. You know that Poland owes over $27 billion dollars and it was unable to pay its interest a few years ago, as you recall, and it was allowed to reschedule the interest. In fact, I believe another loan was given it so it could pay the interest on the $27 billion. You uh, mentioned, in, just in passing, uh, bank loans and foreign loans. Going back to Tilden, whom I quoted earlier, he wrote, Nations cannot without danger become creditors of other nations to any amount whatever. No loan from one nation to another nation can possibly bear merely commercial significance. From the very nature of the state, as opposed to that of individual or the corporate group, the loan will be political. Wherever such political loans are in vast amounts, the result will probably be, though by indirection, a war. And wherever a nation has deceived itself into thinking that a political loan is a commercial venture and cannot undeceive itself, the resulting fury of that disappointed creditor will wreak itself inevitably upon world commerce. 
which is to say upon itself as well as the debtor. It follows that no nation should ever make commercial loans to other states, unquote. Well, what we have done, historically speaking, is to repeat the era of the Spaniards. When Spain got this enormous river of gold and silver from the New World, it used that money in an attempt to uh, solidify Spanish power in Europe. And of course it was like pouring water into the sand. The people took the French and the Italians and everybody else took Spanish gold and silver and enjoyed its use and forgot about Spain. In fact, they turned to hate Spain because they expected Spain to get something in return which they weren't willing to pay. Yes. Now, in 1928, when the United States cut off credit to Germany, it started the Depression. Central Europe collapsed without the American subsidy. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing swung around like a big boomerang to hit the markets of New York and so forth. Right now, Castro is organizing all the Latin Americans to default. What can the United States do if they do default? Nothing. We can't, in, we can't invade them. And I understand by reading uh, Franklin Sanders' uh, newsletter, The Money Changer, that there was a seminar sometime, I believe, this summer in Colorado in which they discussed one immense central bank for all the Western countries and the issuance of a new currency. Of course, you know that the common market uh, has already issued a gold iku, yes. which nobody has accepted and nobody is using. But it's there. And uh, the Wall Street Journal once in a while carries a little ad for anybody who wants to buy one. So they're talking about putting all the central banks together. Well, what difference does that make? It sounds like those uh, agencies that say consolidate your debts. I often wonder if you consolidate your debts through the agency and they charge you a fee, you owe more than you did before you consolidated. Yes. yes. So what, what are they talking about? Yes. Well, some years ago, about the time of the crash, 1929, I think I was in the sixth grade. In world history in those days, we were taught about the Spanish Empire and its blunders mm -hmm. and how that was the worst possible thing any state could do, trying to buy power by passing money all over the world. And this always tickles me when I think about it. They said, uh, as a culminating insult to economic reality, they imposed a sales tax on their people. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, really, you never get that in history now. No, uh, it's interesting because the Spanish Empire is the empire that we most closely parallel. Now, of course, the Spaniards were great fighters to begin with. They didn't get that empire... Uh, through trade and commerce. They got it through war. Mm -hmm. And at one point, the United States was a fairly warlike nation. 
but it is now decided that it can buy its way into security. Uh, it reminds me of that story in Gibbon about the wealthiest man in Rome when the Praetorian Guard was making Caesars. Yes. And he paid the guard to make him Caesar, and they did for one month. And then when he was at a banquet, they came in and cut off his head. Now, money is not power. No. It's only power in a stable society, in a organized and secure civilization. Then money is influential, and money has its uses. Real money, of course, makes men free of the state. And the problem Spain had was that it was unearned wealth. Uh, they got it from the Incas and uh, from uh, the Aztecs. And slave labor. And slave labor, and they didn't work for it. And it immediately falsified their economy and their life. That's and it destroyed them. Very important point. It brings up the gold rush. Somebody recently wrote a book called And the World Rushed In, about the gold rush. And I talked to the author, a very interesting man, because it took him 20-odd years to write the book. He said it became a source of great embarrassment. People stopped asking him how it was coming. <laughs> and I'm glad to say that it was a good book when it yes, finally finished it and it had a good sale. But he said it changed the American psyche mm -hmm. because tales of instant unearned wealth began to float through the country and the get-rich-quick myth mm -hmm. began with the American gold rush. Yes. And Thoreau, who is not one of my heroes, nevertheless said a very bright thing. He said, it makes of God a moneyed gentleman who throws gold sovereigns in the dust for peasants to squabble over. But it's true, the Spaniards lost all their respect for work. Yes, and it's interesting that the Spanish inflation, unlike any other inflation in history, was not with funny money. No. It was gold. That's right, it was with good money. It was with good money, but no work. But what they did with their money at home, they built nunneries, they built monasteries, they built cathedrals, they built, built churches, and they built schools. Now, I don't care how educated you are, you cannot educate yourself into wealth. Yes. That's not real wealth. And it became... Uh, a sign of a gentleman that you did not have to work. Absolutely. Uh, and corrupted Spain. It's begun to be the same sign here. Yes. You have to go through college, you have to have your degree, and you don't stain your hands fixing automobiles or painting houses or digging ditches or anything of that sort. You have to be, uh, well, let's see, we, we've got more people lending each other money <laughs> than any country, I guess, that's ever existed. <laughs> yes. It's a service economy. Everybody is uh, taking in a, a neighbor's washing, <laughs> and that's how they stay wealthy. <laughs> well, of course, it doesn't have to go all the way over the cliff. If we were to pull up, at any point mm -hmm. and establish a sound currency 
a great many of our problems, economically speaking, uh, would begin to diminish very rapidly. And if we had not made the foreign loans we have and the foreign subsidies, we would have no debt. We would have no deficit. Uh, we, we've, uh, it wasn't international, uh, it wasn't national uh, welfare that put us down, it was international welfare. Yes. The worst part of this is that we gave it to the worst people. Yes. We didn't use it to uh, seed capitalism. We did it to seed socialism. And a great deal of it, of course, has gone into weapons of war. And we have provided not only the weapons but the money to enable various despotic governments around the world to kill their people. And oddly enough, our media keeps praising the worst of these despots mm -hmm. while it heaps contempt upon those countries that are doing something more honest. How much would you say we have lost in dollar value in the last two years? Well, overall, 50%. 50%. And most people aren't aware of it. 50% of everyone's fortune mm -hmm. has evaporated in the international marketplace. Now, of course, when we talk about make, make, printing more money, we have to consider credit cards, that's money. Mm -hmm. And we have to consider all the various instruments of money. So we have M1, 2, and 3, and so yes. forth. We have all... Our forebears would have been amazed at the idea that you and I could write out money in the form of a check, make our own. Well, we've created a, a great many instruments, and the instruments are now ruling us. They have altered the attitude of people towards money, towards spending. Well, just look at the sums of money. Uh, when Barbara Walters was given a million dollars a year, it was uh, considered newsworthy enough to put on the front page of all the papers of the country. But to now, today, people like Don Rather are getting two and a half million a year yes. or more. And we have Bill Cosby, who has apparently made over 50 million, and all these enormous sums keep rolling out like French francs used to sound to us, or Brazilian mill raids. <clears throat> Eric Danish, who was in his 80s, talks about the German inflation. He remembers it. He said they stole all the lead pipes out of the buildings. They took the brass door knockers off the doors. He said one of the members of, one of the friends of his family uh, had a golden chain, a watch chain, and he lived by selling the links from mm. the chain. And I recall seeing in one of, uh, of books of the period a scientist in Germany writing a letter to a friend in England saying that he couldn't afford a subscription to the magazine and his friend sent him in English pounds the subscription price and it was enough for him to live for a month with because the pound was backed by gold. Yes. And so was the franc and so was the American dollar and the, the mark was backed by nothing. But the difference is that in those days 
You had these strong currencies. Mm -hmm. Today there isn't any. All our money is like the Soviet ruble. The fact that other countries will exchange it for us or with us uh, is, of course, temporarily very fine. But unless we put a floor under this, the next administration of the United States may uh, find itself handling a problem larger than it can confront. Well, the saying in Germany on the inflation of 23 was, the pigs of the farmers walk on Persian carpets. I bet they did, too. Because people were selling prized possessions for a little bit of food. And I, Dorothy and I, uh, when we were in Southern California, would see a couple occasionally. They had been uh, very wealthy in Hungary. This was before World War II. They had been driven to school, both of them, before their marriage to one another, by chauffeurs. That's the kind of wealth they came from. During the war, they were reduced. They were a newlywed couple. To using an American double eagle, $20 gold piece to buy a rat. The mm. only thing they could purchase to mm. eat. Well, I remember being in Italy at the uh, end of World War II when practically all the money was counterfeit. You had to be an expert in Italian money not to be stuck with a handful of counterfeit. So your first purchase often was your last purchase because all your change was counterfeit and you couldn't buy anything else. And I, I remember that in Amsterdam there were three armies there at the time standing on the uh, Skipperstrasse, and in the course of an hour being offered every commodity, human and inanimate, that is possible to imagine. And to see an economy collapse and to see what people do is an unforgettable experience. Yes. Now here we are with all this luxury Mussolini-style buildings and so forth all over the place, and it just seems that uh, nothing really bad can happen, which is to argue that the law of gravity doesn't operate in American air. <laughs> it does. Mm -hmm. Well, the best part of all of this is that... Uh, Ultimately, it's not Washington, nor Moscow, nor London, nor Paris that's in control with God. And there is a judgment in every area of life, including the economic sphere. So that inflation destroys the people and the nation that uses it. So we're going to see a destruction of all these uh, civil governments and these central banks that are using this kind of uh, larceny 
to further their goals. Yet, we look at Germany, which came out of World War II absolutely ruined. Its cities in rubble. Mm -hmm. Its people destitute. The German people paid an enormous price for following yes. Hitler. Millions upon millions of them were killed, yeah. their property destroyed, they were dispersed, they were humiliated, they were disgraced, they beggared, and then they said, now we're going to do things the honest way under Gerhardt. Mm -hmm. They put up an honest currency, they went to work, of course, they got help from the United States in the terms of terms of credits, techno technological assistance, and so forth. But fundamentally, they went to work. Yes. And now they're rich and powerful. Only half the nation. Yes. Is now again a big factor in Central Europe. Yes, which means that without the same devastation, with everything intact. If we adopt the same kind of uh, determination and a work ethic, we will accomplish far more. No question. We will go up like a rocket. This mm -hmm. country has probably got the greatest number of highly skilled and intelligent people that any society has ever produced. Mm -hmm. The very mixtures of the American society have created a dynamic people. Yes. The only problem is that we have, as Hannah Arendt said, the Americans are wonderful, but she said they lack conceptual thinkers. As a nation, we have never produced great philosophers. We have never really produced outstanding spiritual leaders. The Americans don't like to add things up. Most of the men that I know work hard, want to watch football on the weekends, want to talk shop, the minute the subject gets into something larger, their eyes glaze, turn into <laughs> orphan Annie eyes, the pupils disappear. <laughs> but the thing is, if, if things get tough, we're going to have to add things up. Yes. And if we add things up, I think we'll come out the right door. And I think that's what's happening now. I do believe that we are a part of something that's happening in the United States that's going to turn this country and with it the world around. I believe in the providence of God we've been given the greatest opportunity of centuries at the time when we are in the crisis of centuries. So it's important in particular for Christians to become more responsible in this sphere because the economic sphere is very important. Uh, we were talking about debt a while back, you recall, and I pointed out, and I'd like to point out again, that one of the tragic facts is that the average evangelical Christian is more in debt than his atheistic neighbor. Is he relying on God to pay his debts? He's relying on God, and because he usually is a harder worker, he has a greater borrowing capacity. So he has made himself more vulnerable. And we've got to turn this around. I'm glad that we are hearing from people who say that as a result of what they've learned from us, they are working to get out of debt or have 
managed in the last year or so to get out of debt. That's great, because, you know, if you pay off your mortgage ahead of time, you're out of debt that much sooner, and you pay less. Yes. Yes. Well, our time is just about up. Uh, are there any last uh, words you have to offer? It's very interesting. You remember on our trip to England, listening to the devastation wrought by debt among families over yes. there? Yes, yes. And we don't, uh, you know, with all the stories in the press about the causes of divorce, money is never mentioned. Isn't that it's interesting? It's the number one factor. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. And it isn't mentioned because the very people who study them and the ministers who work with them or the social workers are as much in debt as possible. So it's not something they want to discuss or admit is real. I guess that would be true. Yes. If the pastor is in debt, he's not going to give a sermon against <laughs> it, is he? No. No, he certainly is not. It's like the man who was... Uh, preaching. Maybe you know this old story. He was very angry because his umbrella was missing and he was sure somebody had stolen it from the uh, church uh, uh, clothes room, a uh, cloakroom. So he decided to preach a rousing sermon on the Ten Commandments and uh, Afterwards, one of the deacons asked him uh, why he didn't let him have it and had been so mild and talked about forgiveness of sins instead. And he said, Well, brother, when I got to the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, I remembered where I left my umbrella. <laughs> so, I think that's why Ministers don't talk about debt. They have a bad record there. Well, with that terrible story. It really is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I was making a point about debt, and I thought the story would explain why they don't preach about debt. We'll say good night, and uh, God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.